0: because we're suffering. Nobody's here because their life is too dandy. In a sense we've come here to meet ourselves. <laughs> Scary as that sounds. Can, can you hear alright in the back when I don't have this on? There's no response so I presume you can't hear. It's a precious lifetime that we get a week to spend really looking into what closes our heart what opens it, what clears our mind, and what befuddles it. Although I don't like the word control because in a sense there is no such thing. This allows us a little more control, a little more direct participation in our own life. I don't mean control as the ability to navigate it or steer it. I mean control as the ability to let go of what is blocking life and to let it penetrate. And sometimes that's very painful. Because as life enters, it hits up against a lifetime of resistance, armoring in the heart, the clinging, the obdurate holding of the mind. So at many times, this next seven days is not going to be much fun, but it may be very fruitful. It's really hard to meet our pain in mercy. We have, in a sense, been taught to hate ourselves when we're in pain, when we're suffering, when we most need ourselves, our mercy, our compassion, our healing. Our conditioning has left us such that we are usually least available to ourselves. We are usually most far away from the source of our healing when we are most in need of that healing. So we come together for seven days, all of us, uh, all of us, to heal, to heal into the moment where it's all to be found. We have some extraordinary beings here, and we've got the help of of people like Alan Klein, who is going to do some wonderful things with humor in the next uh, week or so, after the humorless job of having to register you all. (laughs) The most humorless job of having to register you all. Many have asked, uh, where's Andrea? She's right here, she's just not present. We are working with um, helping to ground one of our teenage children who's gone through recently a traumatic event. Clearly the work we have to do has to be in the ground beneath our feet. And if we can't do it at home with our family, chances are we can't do it. So Andrea sends you her love, and though she can't be here with you, she's here. Uh, She said before I left, she said, you know, there's nothing here at home that blocks my becoming enlightened. So I really don't have to go to the retreat. There's a lot of traveling for nothing. Ain't it the truth?
1: I'd just like to say also how happy I am to be here to share this time with you and to be part of the retreat. I've never been been through this particular process before. Um, and I really look forward to it a lot. And I've been a friend and uh, colleague of Stevens for a long time. Um, and so it's been some years since we've worked together, and I'm really looking forward to whatever kind of participation I have in this.
0: To get completely incestuous, it was Jack ten years ago who was the first person to su- suggest I teach. So you can blame it on
1: him. And it was Stephen who edited my very
2: funny book.
0: Schedule. Uh, We're gonna have a bell rung at six fifteen. That'll be wake up. Those of you who are in here, you'll hear it easily. They'll just be walking around. Uh, probably Alan or someone who volunteers to Alan to do this. One person will probably cover the bells in this room, in this building, and another person might volunteer to cover the bells in the annex in the other residential hall. You could speak to Alan about that. There's a 615 bell, which means that you have 45 minutes to for your ablutions and waking up and such and then being in here at seven. Jack will be teaching and guiding the meditation from seven to eight. If it's five minutes after seven when you arrive, please don't come in. Just sit in the hall outside. Great learning, great possibility to see something in um, your self-image, to have to sit alone in the hall. It's kind of like having a dunce cap on. (laughs) And the sooner we acknowledge our dunce cap, the better. Seven to eight, they'll be sitting here. Eight o'clock will be breakfast. At each meal, you'll have an hour and a half. Um, Now about meals. The 110 people that are here, as you probably saw earlier, do not fit at one time in the eating room. And since there is no moment when awareness is not profitable, let us make there be no waiting. If you're waiting, you're forgetting your true self. You're kind of waiting for yourself to get there. You're missing the point. We can eat in consciousness and in mercy without speeding up, of remembering that there's other people waiting to eat, eating, simply eating. Simply washing your dish and letting somebody else come in and eat. Those who are waiting in the hall are not waiting. They're meditating. They're feeling the feet. They're feeling the ground beneath them. They're feeling the body they reside in for a while. They're watching appetite. They're watching intention. They're watching greed. They're watching lust. You know. (laughs) The top 40. (laughs) <laughs> so we'll try, now it, what I'm, the point of me telling you this is when it's 8 o'clock for breakfast or 12.30 for lunch or 5.30 for supper, don't think, oh I'll go to my room, I'll eat after the line's over, so that you come in after 20 minutes after everybody's finished, which attenuates and extends the work of the people in the kitchen. Let us be very conscious of how much they too are part of the family, the, the being we share. Um, so when it's time to eat, go to eat, you may have to wait 15 minutes, but it probably will not be any longer than that. And you'll have an hour and a half for every meal. Although probably we are done with a meal within 45 minutes or an hour usually, unless there's an eating meditation going on. In which case it can take all afternoon. <laughs> uh, will we come back in the room at 930 to 12.30, 12.30 lunch, 2 o'clock return, 2 till 5.30 afternoon session, supper at 5.30, back in here at 7. Usually, we go from till about 9 or 9.30, but as those of you who have been in other retreats know, it's sometimes 12 or 1 o'clock too, if something is particularly powerful and needs to express itself in that in that time. More than having a schedule, Jack and I are trying to tune into the collective cortex and to um, meet whatever needs arise as they arise. So the schedule sometimes is much looser than we're making it sound. Uh, The only thing we try to do is not put off meals so as to cause a hassle in the kitchen. That's not a dog barking. Did you think that was a dog barking? You still think that's a dog barking? That's your mind. I'm going to quiet it down. See? Name it and it dissolves. Better than if he was a moose. Tomorrow, Friday and Saturday, the day after tomorrow, we're going to be sharing it's a kind of an open heart surgery. We're gonna be sharing some of the qualities that we see arise that block our hearts. Our grief. Now, there are people here who have grief from the loss of a child, the death of a child. And there are those who are experiencing the loss of maybe their own body or a loved one's body through some intense disease. And there are those who have experienced the loss perhaps of a mate disappearing after 20 years, running off with the secretary or the milkman. Loss. It isn't... death is certainly a clear example of loss. Um, but for most people, it's the least of their losses. The accumulated grief that most carry are from the millions and millions of moments of pushing away life. From the millions and millions of moments of resistance to things being the way they are, to the unpleasant, to the fearful. The, the 10,000 times we have slaughtered, we have divorced ourselves. We have hated ourselves. That's the grief we carry. And as we will see over the next couple of days, much of the grief that a loss puts us in touch with is that essential response to the impermanent, to the inability to make things the way we want, to our lack of surrender to our holding, to our grief. What a wonderful place, a wonderful opportunity to be able to get into that, to be able to see what is the cause of our suffering. What's the possible end of our suffering? Buddha said if you taught people nothing else than, other than that liberation was possible, you'd be teaching them the greatest of teachings. That liberation is possible. We don't have to be holding on to our suffering. But the letting go of our suffering is the hardest work we'll ever do. And these seven days, at times, will be very difficult be merciful with yourself don't be surprised don't be surprised big surprise you've got suffering in there it's the first time you've ever noticed i'm sure we spend our lives trying to be so together and as we say and as most of you are probably nauseous at hearing most of the people we have met who say they have their shit together are standing in it at the time (laughs) I don't think our work is to be together. Our work is to see what's there. Just to experience for ourselves what the truth might be. The truth directly experienced, not thought, not as an afterthought, not as a dream, but the uh, the moment.
1: Be able to open in the way that Stephen speaks of requires first of all a coming into the present one of the things that will make the meditation so essential a part of the process of opening is that the goal of the meditation is to to listen to awaken to be here with the body, feelings, heart, sounds, fears, thoughts with as much openness and receptivity as we can develop. Meditation really is in one way a training of the mind and in another way it's a letting go. It's a learning to let go of the things which keep us from being here or keep us from opening. There's a a friend who's a very (coughs) wonderful old man and a therapist who I've worked with in the past and he has in the group room where he where he does a lot of his work a sign. It looks like it was stolen from a casino in Las Vegas actually, and it says on it, you must be present to win.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And it's true in Las Vegas.
1: And it's really true here so that in some ways there'll be a a dance here of expression and of listening and sharing among people and all of it is somehow held in a context of an opening of the heart and of our our deepening capacity to really be here with with what God provides us with what is with what is true for us
0: Alan? Where's Alan? Oh. Oh, there you are. Would you like to, whatever needs to be done? And I think the sister was going to share it. I don't have much more to say. I know a lot of people are tired. Um, and we'll get into the the fun tomorrow. <laughs> Maybe Jack would lead us in a meditation?
1: First of all, if you like, take a little bit of a stretch, because have been sitting here for a while. Just a minute or so. Every act count in this marvelous world, in this marvelous time. I wanted you to learn that you must make every act count because you will be here for only a short while. In fact, too short for witnessing all the marvels of it. So the spirit of the meditation is this of making our acts count or making each moment count and of collecting ourselves, of coming back to be in the present moment. We begin in a very simple way, in a time-honored and ancient way, from Hindu and Buddhist and many, many traditions, using the flow of our own breath as the first of the many objects we use in the meditation here. So let yourself sit comfortably now, but erect, and then let your eyes close gently for this first meditation will work. Just coming to feel the breath. First of all, as you close your eyes, go inside as much as you consider your body inside anyway and see if there are any places of obvious holding or tension that you can relax easily. Just places you can let go a little bit. Let your eyes be soft and your face and jaw relax a little let your shoulders drop, your hands be comfortable, maybe take a deep breath. So there's this wonderful balance in starting meditation of being relaxed and yet being awake or alert. Now as you sit here for this first period the exercise or the awakening will begin to feel the movement and the sensations that come from your own living breath. So bring your attention to the breath, letting go of other things now. See if you can collect your mind. Feel wherever you notice a movement of the breath. For some, there'll be coolness at the nostrils, slight vibration. There might be a coolness or a tingling in the throat. There's an expansion and a contraction of the chest. Or if you can feel the breath all the way down, you'll find a rising and falling, like a balloon expanding, falling of the belly. See if you can feel just how your own breath presents itself to you. Like you're an explorer. What parts of it can you feel? the nose or the throat, the chest, belly. and As you pay attention now, see if you can follow a breath as it comes in and as it passes out. Without controlling it, just feel the places that it lights up or that you have some sensation. Some of you may feel it only in the nose. Some may feel only the belly move with the breath coming in and going out. Some of you may feel the whole length of the breath as it passes all the way in and all the way out. Just see what you can feel of it and pay careful attention. See if you can notice from the beginning, through the middle, to the end of the whole in-breath. And the beginning, middle, and end, the whole movement of the out-breath, wherever you feel it. Breathing in, breathing out. now comes the hard part. Stay with the breath. First it's to become acquainted with what's there for you, what sensations are there. And now it's to begin to train the heart and the mind to stay with the breath. So that when you put it somewhere it stays, it stays collected. So now stay with the breath, feeling each breath as it comes in and out for the next minutes. And each time you notice that you wander off in thoughts or hearing sounds or pains or distractions of any kind, as soon as you notice them, as soon as you notice the mind has wandered to some other place, gently let go wherever that place is, and bring your attention right back softly to the breath. You may bring it back ten or a hundred times It doesn't matter. As soon as you notice it's wandered, collect it. Collect yourself again and come back again and again to feel the beginning, the middle, and the end of the breath coming in. The beginning, middle, and end of the breath going out until you can really become one with the breath. There's coolness, tingling, vibration, movement. See if you can just stay with this flow, this pulse of sensation. Each breath, Every time the mind wanders, when you're aware of it, just let go, gently come back again, collecting, bringing yourself together, together with the breath. Now one more thing to add. As each breath comes in and out, let yourself make a very gentle note or mental note or word in the background of your mind, in during the in-breath, and out during the out-breath. Ninety-five percent of your attention is feeling the sensation as the breath comes in and out. And the 5% says very softly, in and out. Just one more minute. See if you can be with every breath for this last minute. I'd like to close the meditation tonight with just a short chant, whose meaning it's a chant that's chanted every day in the morning and night in monasteries in many countries in Asia. And its meaning is about the teachings of the Dharma or the way of opening and liberation. And it says in it that it is immediate and available to all, that it's open-handed, that it is delightful, and to be experienced by each person who tries, who discovers for themselves. Namo arahato Samma sambhutatsa Bhutang dhammang sangang namatsami Iti piso arahang samma <coughs> samputo vichacharana <coughs> sampano sukato lo kavitu anutaro purisa Dhamma-sārāti sāta te vamanu-cānāṁ puto-bhāgavāti bhagavata bhāgavāta-dhammo sanditiko akāliko ehipāsiko vopanāhiko pachatāṁ vetitapu when you hit the
0: Are there any questions about schedule? I just want to say one thing about this room. We're going to try to keep this room uh, really as sacred.
1: Try to sit in such a way that you are both comfortable and alert. A way that's stable enough for you to sit quite still for this meditation period. Experiment with posture over the next days, squatting on the cushion or cross-legged, finding whatever positions work best for you. If you discover that you have to move during the meditation time, try to make the movements infrequent rather than many small adjustments make one or two changes of posture in the period of the hour, and between them again, try to sit still. The stilling and the calming of the body helps very much in the stilling of the mind and the opening of the heart. Once you've found your posture, Then again for this morning, we'll continue working with this collecting of the mind, gathering of our attention, bringing ourselves back here, using the breath. So let your eyes close gently. And again, first just... (coughs) Come into the body with your awareness. See if there are any places that can be simply or easily relaxed. Let the eyes and face especially be soft. Relax the jaw. Let the shoulders and arms and hands all be soft. In <coughs> beginning to work with the breath, you might take two or three deeper breaths, both to relax a bit. To see if you can feel with these full breaths just where the breathing and the sensations are apparent to you. Now let the breath resume its natural rhythm, and for this time let it be natural. Let it be slow or fast, even, uneven, however it wishes. Your task in the meditation is not to control the breath, but to feel it, to experience it, as it changes from one moment to another, as if you are a watch person by a gate, or standing in a stream and the water flow changes. There's high water and low water. Sometimes it makes a lot of sound. Sometimes it's very delicate. The tiniest cool sensation, the littlest movement of the abdomen, Try to feel the breath, however it presents itself, from the beginning through the middle to the end of each whole in-breath, in and each out-breath. There are dozens of little sensations in the length of a breath, tingling, vibration, constriction or contraction, expansion, coolness, fluttering. Let your attention be delicate, be careful. Stay with the breath, and as each one comes in and out, if you like, you may make a gentle note of in and out, softly in the back of the mind, to keep even the thinking part of you connected with this process of the life breath. <clears> okay. <throat> Whenever you notice the mind has wandered away to thought, to fear, to sound, to sensation, to wherever it might go, for this first hour, gently let go and bring yourself back, feeling the breath and starting anew. What's needed, says St. Francis de Sales, is a cup of knowledge, a barrel of love, and an ocean of patience. And the patience is really a gentleness, an ability to come back into the moment again and again, and start again with the breath. See if you're able to notice sometimes the very beginning of the breath or the very end of one of the breaths. See if you can notice if there's any space between breaths and just feel what's there when the breath ends and there's space. And then the very beginning, the first tiny sensation of the next breath. as various things arise that would call your attention for now try to let them come and go of their own and stay with the breath collecting the attention with care coming back again This is further instruction from St. Francis de Sales. He says, If the heart wanders or is distracted, bring it back to the point quite gently. And even if you did nothing during the whole of your hour, but bring your heart back a thousand times, though it went away every time you brought it back, your hour would be well employed. If the heart wanders or is distracted, bring it back to the point quite gently, even a thousand times, and gradually it begins to rest here a bit more, to feel the beginning of the breath, to feel the middle, the coolness, the changes, the end, the space between, and then it wanders off and again you come back and feel the breath with care and attention. Pfft, <clears throat> Uh, pay attention. See if at those times that it's soft, you can let your attention get soft. So the softness of the breath draws the mind or draws the attention down to an equally soft or careful noticing. We're a kind of turn up the volume culture. When something gets quiet, it's, it's not easy to pay attention to and you want to kind of crank up the volume and get more happening. But in meditation, it's really a refining of our capacity to listen carefully or to feel carefully. So if the breath gets very, very slight, this tiny little sensation, see if you can let your attention get very tiny and soft and just feel that little bit of movement that's there, which then allows you to to develop this this capacity of concentrating, of, of being where you are in a much more sensitive way. So it's a good question, thank you. Please. I
2: have a
3: question sometimes are movements
4: that are not intended and they just happen, it's your...
0: ...of loss, <coughs> of feelings of being out of control, fear of insanity fear of letting go, fear of just being, because there's a sense that who you really are is not enough, because you have no idea who you really are, who you actually, it's who you think you are is not enough. Who you really are is plenty much, plenty sufficient. (coughs) So we begin this process of becoming whole by focusing on the places we feel unwhole. As you know, in Zen, they say the greater the hindrance, the greater the enlightenment, the denser the holding, the more intense the pain, actually the more clearly one can focus and begin to walk themselves home, walk themselves into the center of being, past the peripheral, the superficial, the the loosely held, the confusedly grasped, and to really enter deeply the moment being as it unfolds, to be in life instead of life being an afterthought, I know that some of you come thinking that you're just here to see how to help others. There are no others. There are no others. That pain you see around you in the world is your own. The injustice you see in the world is your own. That person you don't like, that which is the expression of that aspect of yourself that you don't like, We can carry all this around forever. No one says you have to let go. No one says you have to forgive. You don't have to forgive. You don't have to let go. You don't have to meditate. You don't have to record this. (laughs) But it's painful. It's not good or bad. It's just painful to hold. And it's dulling. One of the things that Andrea and I were most struck with a few years into this work with people who were dying was not how difficult it was to die, but how many people really wanted to die. How many aspects of all of us really want out. I don't mean want to die in faith and in (coughs) trust and in acceptance and the leap of faith. I mean, how many parts of ourselves are backing out of life? We say that, you know, if you found you had a terminal diagnosis, and someone said, well, on the left-hand side of the piece of paper, write all the reasons you just would love not to die, all the reasons you want to stay alive, the love of your children, the love of... The sky, the love of chocolate mousse, the, the learning, the wisdom, the deepening, the, all the things that are fulfilling and meaningful. And there'd be maybe hundreds or even thousands. But if I said to you, okay, now on the other column, on the right-hand column, in column B, put down the reasons why, if you died right now, somehow it would be okay. The world weariness the confusion, the self-hatred, the doubt, the feelings of incompleteness. We are constantly focusing on, oh, how lovely and how wonderful life is, and denying that in mind, in the mind, also exists places of great density and pain and confusion and grief. It may well be, and we'll get into this more when we do the healing day, it may well be that it is in that right-hand column, in the places that we find life insufficient. It may be those qualities to which disease adheres. It is certainly those qualities to which our suffering adheres because of our resistance, not because of our, those qualities, because of our r- hatred of our world weariness, our confusion, our bewilderment, instead of a little lightness, a little joy, a little humor with big surprise. Big surprise. That can become your mantra. When the mind sends up its darkest shit, look at it. Big surprise. It's not the first time it's arisen. And it won't be the last time. So let's get on with it. Let's not make our pain the thing that keeps us locked away from life. Let's make our pain the thing that wakes us up, that is so noticeable, that is so evident, that it really propels us to get on to the moment-to-moment merciful investigation of why we're in pain. Why should anyone be in pain? You know, we hear a lot of people take what's called the Bodhisattva vow, which means I will not enter enlightenment, I will not enter peace until all other beings are in peace peace to all sentient beings. But if you closely investigate, examine that person's relationship to themselves, you will see that they bring much less mercy to themselves than to others because still there is the idea of self and other. Still there is the idea of who we are instead of the direct experience that there is no separation. The separation is only a bubble in the mind, a thought, it does not exist at the deepest levels in reality. It's a dream. Unfortunately, it seems to be the examination of our pain that's going to begin the path of setting us free. Because, you know, in a very real sense it does not matter what's going through the mind. It could be hatred, it could be fear. It could be ecstasy. But if the open-heartedness meets it, if mercy meets it, it doesn't matter what the object is, your experience, the state of mind will be peaceful. will be allowing. will be willing. If there's a single definition of conscious dying, it would be to let go of this moment and allow the next moment to arise. That's conscious living. But so often we can't let go of this moment because it's so held in pain. There is so little of us that can accept that that actually is the moment. Anger, doubt, loathing is the moment. The investigation of loathing, the investigation of fear, almost always the investigation of a thing will stimulate are now rising of a balancing quality. The investigation of anger can bring incredible love and compassion into your life. (coughs) Deep non-judgment can come from the investigation of the judging process. So we are going to enter, uh, approach the non-suffering By entering the suffering, by entering the pain we hold, and we have so often negated. How many people in the room have lost loved ones? I don't mean just to death. right (laughs) is there anyone in the room who has never lost a loved one is there any lifetime that has not had something cherished dissolve and here we are this is the plane you know we got off the elevator we took our number Now we say, no, no, let me on the elevator. I got off at the wrong floor. I wanted the one where there was no suffering and uh, (laughs) heated pools and uh, diamond paths. Right. How many people in the room have lost children, have had children die? Do you want to share... That
2: experience
0: as you wish um. forgiveness is a skillful means of softening that pain and getting on with it it has nothing to do with you're wrong or you're right Mm -hmm. because I've had people say well I didn't do anything wrong why should I work with forgiveness nobody has ever done anything wrong in a sense in a very real sense but forgiveness is a skillful means to start to get to the heart of the matter instead of staying mental about our holding. So don't misunderstand when we suggest forgiveness, that it, it's a sign that you've done something wrong. It, it, it's, it has nothing to do with wrong, it has to do with the uh, state of mind guilt, which arises uninvited. Um, and guilt is just conflicting desire systems. Uh, One minute, you say, gee, I'd love a chocolate sundae, and you have that chocolate sundae. Five minutes later, your mind turns to you and says, I wouldn't have done that if I were you. (laughs) Well, no wonder we're crazy. But, it's not, it's not surprising, it's not, that that is the way the mind works. You just watch it, you see that there's constantly different voices, different desires. On the one hand, his desire is to go on with his life, and to live his life, and to do whatever he wants to do. So there's that one desire, and along with that desire comes, well, this is an obstacle, a child's an obstacle. So it, that desire system moves toward abortion. But there's other desire systems in us, too. And some of those say all life is precious, or many of those desire systems says, don't cause suffering to another human being. It doesn't feel right. So we, both of those are valid. His wanting to find his way in the world? Valid. His feeling that he doesn't want to cause suffering to someone else? Valid. But the conflict of those two desire systems as they pass, the friction as they pass creates this kind of guilt that, that only he in the room has.
2: <laughs>
0: um, I saw, we saw an interesting thing, just mentioning guilt. Uh, Those of you who have seen the movie, The Onion Field, there's a black fellow and a white fellow who um, uh, uh, kidnap a few policemen and (coughs) one of the policemen is killed, is murdered. And afterward, they arrest him. And they ask the black fellow, they say, do you feel any, they're trying to see at what level they're going to charge him. Is it going to be first degree murder or what? They say, do you feel any remorse? Do you feel any, do you feel badly about killing? Do you feel any guilt about killing this fellow? The black fellow looks up and he says, you know, I think that guilt is just something you rich white boys made up to keep us black people in our place. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, he's a sociopath, but that's beside the point because he wasn't feeling guilt. Something is amiss in his system. So, when you feel guilt, don't think of it so much as an enemy. I mean, it's just something else that's waking us up to the natural friction, the natural heat that's released in. Uh, the con- in various levels of conditioning where there may well naturally be opposing desire systems, you can almost count on it. So again, so we use forgiveness to soften that quality that arose uninvited, we use another quality to balance it out, to melt it, so that we're not holding around our heart, so that we can have a little more of ourselves exposed. So that this state too is seen <coughs> as just something else that's going to arise, Now and again, under certain circumstances, big surprise. (coughs) Did I cut you off? No, I was finished. Mother, have the child and he could then end up not having it. shared how she'd been sexually abused as a child by uh, a father, or stepfather, stepfather, who had been a drunk at the time, alcoholic at the time, and how her anger at her mother for not being protected, etc. It had happened, I think, 10 or 12 years before, a long time before, maybe even longer than that, to a woman in her (coughs) mid-twenties. As we talked, as we, she started to investigate the possibility. <laughs> Anything come up during the night that wants to be shared? Please.
5: This isn't during the night, but um, Jack was talking this morning about watching. Uh, And after last night about humor, I was wondering where the humor came in in just watching. (laughs) Um, And um, I was wondering about... (laughs) And is that um, that just, is that something extra in addition to just watching, or...?
2: (laughs) (laughs)
3: I mean, it's really ridiculous. I spoke out uh, Not understood by the other party particularly, but... You know, it's uh, rather humorous when you see yourself in some of your, your manifestations.
0: Most of them. <laughs> you know, the humor is when you look at the intensity of the work we're doing just to come into the moment where we live all the time, it's a kind of abs- theater of the absurd kind of humor. When you see people walking outside, like the night of the living dead, <laughs> people sitting still, very different, very different, it's kind of a radical remedy for a radical situation. I remember sitting once uh, in a long retreat, my mind very quiet for that moment, And all of a sudden my mind turned to me like it was some, like I was someone else and said, buddy, come here, you want to buy a used car? (laughs) And it tried to sell me a car that I didn't want. And I was laughing, I mean I was in the meditation hall and I started laughing out loud and it wouldn't stop. It said, listen, quiet down, quiet down, this is really a good car, don't pass this (laughs) up. And it was somebody that I had no identification with that was speaking in my mind. Uh, Pretty funny that same night in the meditation hall about um, two or three in the morning people maybe not that late people sitting real late it was during a three-month course the first one we did up in Maine people are real quiet real intense real serious in the back of the hall you heard somebody's bench start to creak (laughs) and then he fell off and in the midst of the silence we heard oh shit (laughs) And remember that? And everybody in the room cracked up. <laughs> Here's the humor. <laughs>
2: Thinking
4: about, oh shit,
5: is a death chant.
0: That doesn't really answer your question. But it doesn't well, matter, you right? You
5: know, it has to do with, I think, with, you know, yesterday a number of well, I'd really like to forgive myself, or I'd like to experience uh, warmth towards myself, uh, but I don't know where to start. I don't know how to do it. Hmm. And uh, in meditation, uh, seems like a good place to start. Right. Where the just watching isn't just watching, but there can be warmth from the watching.
0: Just watching in just watching one sees a lot about what is not just watching, what is not just being and is all the becoming, all the personalities, all the self-identifications to meet that my sense is that meditation needs a deep loving kindness to kind of grease the way because sooner or later and again and again one is going to come up against issues and aspects of themselves that they've spent much of their life forcing out of awareness and it's going to be very painful and if one cannot see them first in a sense of care and loving kindness and healing and in another sense the universality of that pain which also brings up loving kindness Um, it's much, if it's dry it's like a dry birth. Uh, if it has loving-kindness, if it has mercy and compassion, it'll be like a moist birth. Birth usually is painful, but it doesn't have to kill you. It doesn't have to tear your limbs off. It doesn't have to destroy the mother as well. It can be the sliding through the painful holdings. the, As one poet said, the cervix stretching to allow heaven to pass it can be that kind of birth the pain that ends pain not the pain that cripples us and leaves us deformed for the rest of our incarnation loving kindness and mercy seems to allow us more capacity for our pain more capacity for letting go and more capacity for humans I think it's just a skillful means to be doing a loving-kindness meditation along with maybe you sit 15 minutes in loving-kindness meditation before you start working with your breath. Or maybe you do an hour of Vipassana and at some other time during the day you do a half an hour of metta, loving-kindness meditation. My sense is that the two are um, Absolutely, They're like the gas and oil that it's necessary for a car to run. You can't run it on just oil, and you can't run it on just gas. I mean, you can run it for a little while on just gas, but then you've burned out the engine. And if you've got too much oil, everything's so slippery that the spark plugs won't fire. So it can't be this mushy, oh, everything's perfect. Because mm-hmm. everything is perfect, but if you're not participating, if you're not directly experiencing the perfection, then that perfection is just a thought in your mind, too superficial. It doesn't touch the real perfection, the actual perfection. It's just a reflection, a thought of it. I think also that
1: one thing that happens for people who learn to sit or meditate at times is there tends to be a sense of a a detached witnessing rather than a feeling or embodying experience. and for awareness somehow to be to be full for us, it's required that somehow that you feel it. It's almost as if your awareness comes through your heart more than it comes through your head or your mind, that you sit and it might be painful or it might be humorous or it might be both. And think very often the humor comes at times when it, when it hurts and then you all of a sudden see it in some new way. But that our capacity in meditation grows to actually feel or open to directly experience it in our bodies and in our emotions as much as to, to see it or be able to give it its name. And then I don't think it ever really gets dry if it stays down in here.
3: If you're going through a period of, of hating yourself and uh, being very much aware of how much Hatred there is for itself. Uh, where where does the loving kindness come? From? Uh, is it important to follow through and try to experience this whole this whole business, um, or is there a point at which you cut it off and say, Oh, and I'm going to be nice to myself for a few minutes and stop hating?
1: To feel it, to pay attention to even that, which is really painful, to hate yourself. Um, if you say, it's bad, I wish I could get rid of it, is there some way I can get it to go? What you do is you add one little more hatred on top of the big mountain. If you're judging yourself, and you're saying, I'm not good this way, and I don't like myself, and not only that, I judge myself too much. <laughs> and then you notice, oh, I'm judging. You're just adding more judgment, more hatred on top. So it doesn't help it much. It just makes it bigger. How big is your hatred? Is it as big as this room? Well, well picture it for a no, second. About half. Half the size. What, this beautiful? <coughs> and that's actually manageable for some people. It's like planets. Anyway, all right. So which half is like like that half of th- about that big, huh? Can you see it? huh. Well
3: it came up this morning.
2: Sure. What
1: color it's is it?
3: Real, real Oh
2: god. Yellow, I guess. Yellow, huh?
1: Does it have a name and could you imagine? Well, George it's or all connected you know. <laughs>
3: with my daughter. It's all very clear. I mean, here's where it starts with this non relationship. You see. And then I first I hated her. And then I recognized where I was involved in all of this and began to go in with you see. and to see where uh, I I'm part of this whole thing. You know, it not anything she just cooked up by herself? So that's what I'm working on today. This morning it started uh, heavy, lot, like. and so I'm working on this and I want to see where I. Uh, uh, been responsible, but it's not a
1: relationship. Really what I hear you saying is it started as hatred and now a lot what you're feeling is the pain of it, the pain in that relationship. And that is something, that's what gets your heart to open, to stay with that. It's not something you need to push away or resist, and that's not what you're doing, but really to open. It's not a problem in that sense. It's just what your experience is to actually to breathe and to feel that. You've shifted from the hatred to really just feeling what's there in you.
0: You After my first long sitting practice, I came home and I remember I was sitting the next morning at the kitchen table and all of a sudden I was just overwhelmed with self-hatred. And I was, it was really frightening, the immensity of it, the, the, almost the immeasurability of it. It was bigger than the room I was in. <coughs> and I called my teacher, really kind of panicking. You know, how do I get out of this state? And he said He started to laugh. He said, how wonderful. He said, how precious. Don't get rid of it too quick. He said, what a precious opportunity to see. What a precious opportunity to go beyond. When have you ever noticed so strongly that self-derision that self-negation and yet it causes such pain in your life imagine at last you can look the pain in the eye he's at last you can get on with it son of a bitch i said (laughs) (laughs) my self-hatred quickly just went over to him
5: same wonderful topic of hatred, um, something that, that, that just come up for me this morning, I just, you know, medication this morning, I felt my, my legs and my knees, just really dire pain, did the best I could to, to hang out with it and go into it and look at it and all this horse shit.
0: <laughs> well, just as long um, as it didn't create any anger in you. <laughs>
5: And, uh, I just thought of every possible delusion I could to think of to uh, try and get rid of it without pretending that I thought I wasn't trying to get rid of it. Uh, it was later after the meditation that I was rolling with it, and I found myself saying, "Well, you know, when it comes right down to it, really, what I, I really hate the pain." I had to say this to myself three times before mm-hmm. Right, you hate the pain. Mm-hmm. The heart of the experience, what I mean, exper- it's not the pain.
0: You're experiencing the hate.
5: experiencing the hatred. Right. And, uh,
0: and hatred is one of the most painful experiences yeah. we can have.
5: Yeah. And I really hadn't <laughs> recognized that in this way, right, or something simple good old-fashioned knee pain, but I hated it. That mm. wasn't hate as big as his throne, but it was a good, a worthy
0: amount of hate. Mm-hmm. Jack and I have a friend who sat in India for some years, and for about three years he had a pain in his knee, and it became his focus, because he couldn't not See it. So he had put his consciousness, and it, because pain is so evident, it drew him in and it was his focal point of concentration. One day he got up and it was gone. He said he grieved for it for months. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yesterday, when uh,
4: Jack first said that we would be doing a walking meditation, the first thing that went through my mind was, um, I'm not going to do that. I've seen people do that. That was really stupid. <laughs> and um, But then I thought, well, I'll just participate in whatever's offered, and I'll, I'll just see how it is. And it was such a great experience for me because I immediately noticed. The first thing I did was try to set a boundary. I would walk between here and there, and how much I do that in my life. There's got to be some place that I'm going to go to, or it's not worth the walk, you know. And in the process of just doing the meditation, it was it was so beautiful to me to just see um, the intricate balance that every step took and the, the amount of caring that every little step took. And at one point, this incredible joy welled up inside of me because I thought, I feel like I, I think this is how I felt when I first took my steps as a, as a child. And it was like this incredible pride and this I can walk, you know, like it was just the neatest thing in the world to be able to walk. And I thought, wow, (laughs) if in my life I took every step with this much caring and this much attention to the balance it requires, um, just the fullness of of what that would be. And and then I started grieving for all those moments um, of not caring and all those moments of not paying attention. And And all the ones to come. And all the ones to come, (laughs) of (laughs) not seeing. And and, um, it was very profound, so thank you. I'm glad I chose to participate in that.
3: I would like to ask about uh... feelings of joy and ecstasy high in meditation Uh, so i've certainly had a large share of that it comes sometimes and it goes sometimes and my feeling is that it's greatly overrated It certainly doesn't have a whole lot to do with the kind of stillness (coughs) and quiet, which I think (coughs) most desirable, because um, (laughs) ecstasy, for all that it's wonderful, is a very jangly kind of state. And I'm wondering if, to me, it's just a distraction. Uh, it, it, it can totally fuck up a whole morning of meditation. <laughs> 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 I had to give up kaiju because I was getting too high doing it. And I do it. Uh, can we talk a
2: little bit about that?
1: Is there anyone here who wants to trade with him? <laughs> <laughs> You know, um, there are really two kinds of stillness or peace or opening that you can come to in your spiritual practice. One is the kind where you go away and you can do it by going off to the Himalayas in a cave, or you can do it in your sitting by closing your eyes and your ears, your nose, and rolling up in a blanket and basically...
0: Thank you for listening.